It is good to be with you this morning. My name is Jason, one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to get to speak with you this morning. We're going to start by uh, asking God to speak to us this morning. There's going to be a prayer up on the slide. And if it's your desire, if you're here this morning wanting uh, to hear from God, I would ask you to join me in praying this uh, together. Speak to us, Lord. Speak to us in the waiting, the hoping, the longing, the sorrow, the rejoicing. Speak to us by your word in these Advent days and walk with us until the day of your coming. Amen. We're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Uh, I'll, I won't ask you to stand. It's, it's a longer passage. So uh, I'm going to read and ask you just to follow along, whether you have your Bible in front of you or you want to follow along on the slide. We're going to start in verse 1 here at the beginning of chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it was is written by the prophet and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king... They went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is God's word. 
In uh, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Widow Douglas does her best to civilize Huck by teaching him social etiquette and moral virtues, but without much success. At one point, the widow turned to reading the Bible to the rebellious young boy, hoping to reform him. But, but here's Huck's response in his own words. After supper, she got out her book and learned me about Moses and the bulrushers. And I was in a sweat to find out all about him. But by and by, she let it out that Moses has been dead a considerable long time. So then I didn't care no more about him because I don't take stock in no dead people. This Advent, we're offering a slightly different perspective than Huck. Uh, we believe there's something to learn from dead people. In fact, when we hear the stories of John the Baptist, Joseph, Mary, we also hear our own stories. You see, these dead people are still alive today in us. And this is even true with a troubling and tragic character such as King Herod. Now, I'd like to focus this morning on verse 16. There's a lot that could be said about the passage that was read, but we're just going to look at one verse specifically. That'll be our focus, and I'll, I'll read it again for you. Then Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. In this verse, Herod orders his soldiers to go to Bethlehem and kill all the male children two years of age and under. At this time, historians believe there was probably around 20 children in Bethlehem that fit this description. So when we read this, we can't help but be heartbroken to think about the reality of this event. And, and, it, and you can't help but think Herod was an evil, evil man. And he was. But I wonder how different Herod is from each and every one of us. Dale Bruner, in his commentary on this story, wrote, Herod is what I am deep down inside. Now, you may find that idea repulsive. After all, no one in this room has ordered the slaughter of innocent children. And that's true. And I'm not arguing that you and I are exactly like Herod or that we've done anything like what Herod did. No, I'm hoping to show you that the very thing that motivated and compelled Herod to do this tragic act, that that same motivation is found within each and every one of us. It's a reality in our own hearts. And if we're honest, the coming of Jesus, the reality of Jesus as the true king, can cause that kind of ugliness that resides within us to bubble up. And to surface. Now let's look at what happened with Herod, and, and we can see if maybe if there's anything we can learn about ourselves. In verse 16, when Herod realized the wise men had tricked him, we're told that he became furious. Now, what was really at play here? What was going on in Herod's heart that caused him to be furious? 
Well, I think to understand Herod, we, we actually have to go back to 63 B.C. You see, it was in that year that the great Roman military leader Pompey conquered Jerusalem. And when Rome conquered a territory, they had a practice of, of putting a local uh, individual in charge to act as a vassal king on Rome's behalf. And at around 40 B.C., the Roman Senate named a young man named Herod to this job, giving him the title King of Judea. Now that was controversial because Herod was not a Jew by birth. Herod's family had actually converted to Judaism. And one writer described Herod like this. He was racially Arab, religiously Jewish, culturally Greek, and politically Roman. So Herod was a mixed bag, and this mixed heritage of Herod's caused many Jews to question his authority. And over the decades, Herod was always dealing with this question. He was constantly worried about rebellious threats to his throne. And in the pages of history, when we read about Herod, we see a man who is very paranoid. There's a few examples we can look at to show, show us this. For example, Herod, it's been said, hired 20 or 2,000 soldiers to act as his personal bodyguards. If you've been to Israel, you've probably visited Masada. It's one of, I have a slide here. It's one of the most popular tourist attractions in Israel. Herod built this fortress as an escape plan in case there was ever an insurrection an attack on his throne. Herod also had many of his own family members executed for treason, treason, including his wife and three of his children. So it's obvious that Herod was no stranger to taking extreme actions against anyone or anything that he deemed a threat. And obviously, in our story, he deemed Jesus as a threat. As Frederick Bickner wrote, for all his enormous power, Herod knew there was someone in diapers more powerful still. As king of Judea, Herod was a powerful man. Historians will tell you he was a shrewd politician. He kept the peace in Judea during a very turbulent time. He initiated some of the greatest architectural projects of the first century. And yet in the pages of history, Herod comes across as a very desperate man. He's so desperate to maintain his seat of power. He's so desperate to eliminate any threat to his authority. And it seems that in Herod was this dominant idol for power and control that resided within his heart. And that may seem like a strange thing to, to say because we often think of idols as wooden statues or golden calves. But the Bible makes it clear that anything can become an idol uh, asking for our worship. Take, for example, the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Listen to how he speaks about this idea of idolatry. Has a nation changed its gods even though there are no gods? Uh, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, 
and hewned out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see what Jeremiah is saying, that instead of turning to God to drink the living water that he offers us, we try to construct our own cisterns, our own source of nourishment and sustenance, so that we no longer have to rely on God And the truth is, an idol doesn't have to be a statue. It doesn't have to be a religious artifact. An idol can be anything that we use to replace God in our lives. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul describes in Romans 1. He talks about idolatry this way, that we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. And so this was Herod's deeper problem. Power had become a thing that he worshipped rather than God. His crown was the broken cistern that Herod used to nourish his soul. It was the thing that he relied on to give him life, to give him significance, to give him meaning. And when that idol was threatened, Herod reacted. He reacted violently, swiftly, decisively, tragically. And this is where I want to make the connection between you and Herod. Not that you've ordered the murder of innocent children or done anything as grievous as Herod, but you, like me, have had your idols threatened. And when we consider the Christmas story and the coming of Jesus into the world, I want to draw your attention to the reality that that story threatens your idols. Because Jesus demands all of you. Now, I think Matthew, the writer of this story, wants us to see that Jesus, even as a baby, stimulates strong reactions from people. Notice the comparison Matthew makes between the wise men and Jesus. The the wise men travel many miles, many weeks to worship Jesus and offer him their most precious gifts. Remember verse 11, And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. This is an extreme response of worship. We should read this and take note and be surprised that these Gentile uh, astrologers would travel so far to worship the king of the Jews. Now compare that with Herod, who wanted not to worship Jesus, but to kill him. Two opposite reactions, two very strong reactions. There was nothing mild or vanilla about the ways that the wise men and Herod responded to Jesus. And the positive thing, the one positive thing I can say about Herod in this story is that he saw, maybe better than anyone else in this room, that Jesus' entrance into the world truly was a threat. I think sometimes we don't see that. But Herod saw it. And he responded to it. You see, Herod understood what the reality of Jesus, the true king, was for him. And it developed, he developed this hatred that, for God that bubbled up 
to the surface. And that's what happened when Jesus challenges our idols. Jesus makes this clear in his own life, in his own ministry, when he says this to his disciples. That if you love your father or mother more than uh, you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. And what Jesus was doing is he was challenging the idol of family. The idol that I think all of us fall into in this room, that our love for our family can come first in our lives. But Jesus is saying, no, I must be first. I must be first. Now, you may not realize it, being a Christian your whole life, that you've been unwilling to give all to Jesus as your king. We can go through our entire lives as Christians and not realize the threat that Jesus poses to the idols of our hearts. You might think to yourself, well, I'm willing to give Jesus my Sunday morning. I'm willing to give him this little bit of time here in this service. So, but but I, I expect to be able to maintain the rest of my week and spend my time the way I want to spend my time. But if, if you were really pushed like Herod, if you were really challenged with how you spend moment by moment, day by day, maybe you would be just as furious. Maybe you would react in a similar way to Herod and say, Jesus, you don't have that authority over me. You can't tell me what to do all the time in every situation. I'm not willing to give you that authority over me and in my life and in my heart. And you see, that's what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 8 when he talks about this hostility that all of us have towards God. He talks about this hostility that our hearts have towards God. He's arguing that that reality is in each and every one of us. And I realize some of you are saying, I'm not hostile to God. I love God. And here's what I want you to see this morning. I believe you. I believe you do love God, but I also believe there's a part of you that hates God. You see, I think the Bible shows us that we are a walking contradiction as human beings. That while we can worship God like the wise men, at the same time, we can have this hatred deep down inside of us, just like Herod. Now, some of us might like the black and white categories. We might like to think, well, there are people that clearly hate God. A person like Richard Dawkins, an atheist who, who clearly uh, says things against God and his, and his obvious hatred for God. And we like to categorize people as those are the bad people. And, and then there are the good people and how they love God and worship God. And I'm trying to get you to see that maybe, just maybe that both are true for us. That our worship of God is mixed with our hatred. You know, the atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel, he recognized this struggle. He called it a cosmic authority problem that we all deal with. He acknowledged that as an atheist, he can't pretend to, to argue that his atheism is, a, is an objective worldview that is somehow neutral. Instead, he was honest enough to say that he desperately wants atheism to be true 
Why? Because he knows that if there's a God, that God most likely would have some claim of authority over him, and he doesn't want that. It's a very honest, honest confession. The reality of this truth hit home for me a few months ago. I saw Herod in my own heart. Uh, Olivia and I had an argument. We had a pretty good fight. And, uh, you know, I said some things I'm not proud of in, in that argument. And, and the next day, you know, Olivia came to me wanting to debrief, wanting to follow up, wanting to, to reconnect. And, you know, I didn't want to deal with it. I, I didn't want to accept that I had done the things that I had done or said the things that I had said. In fact, when she tried to bring it to my attention, you know, I turned on her, I yelled at her, and I stormed out of the house. I sent her a nasty text message. And as I reflect on that event, I, I ask the question, what was going on in my heart? Why was I so furious? And over time, I've come to see that an idol was being threatened. That I was clinging on to this idol of my reputation. I've always viewed myself as a good husband. I didn't realize that how precious that has been to me until that moment when Olivia started to push that idol. Started to threaten that idol. And when she did, boy, I reacted. I fought for my reputation. I fought for my significance. I fought for the thing that was giving me my meaning. I'm a good husband. I wasn't able to admit at that time, you know, sometimes I'm not a good husband. Sometimes I'm a real jerk. And as I look back on that again, I see, I see Herod within me. I I see that part of me that wants to stay in power. I see that part of me that wants to hold on to that meaning and significance outside of Christ. What about you? Can you see that same kind of desperation within your own heart? This Advent season, are you willing to admit there's a part of you that finds the baby Jesus threatening? There's a part of you that doesn't want to bow the knee. But here's the good news. This is why the Christmas story is so wonderful. Because there's two ways we can approach the reality of this truth. For some, we ignore it. We pretend that that's not true of us. Uh, We like to think, no, no, we're really not that bad. And we go through our lives playing that game. Because we think if we don't admit it, then maybe it really won't be true. And then maybe God really will embrace us and accept us. But the Christmas story, friends, is that Jesus came into the world to redeem us. That Jesus already knows that Herod lives within each and every one of us. And that he went to the cross to kill that Herod within us. And the good news of the gospel is that he is at work doing that today, doing that in you, doing that in me, and that one day when he comes back, 
His work will be completed. And that is what we celebrate this Christmas. The work that Christ is doing in us, the work that Christ is doing for us, that our true King has not come to brutalize us or oppress us, but to forgive us and embrace us. And that's what we're going to celebrate this morning with the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate that good news. And I'm going to be able to invite you to receive and take that meal together. But before we do it, we're going to spend a few moments confessing our faith in what we believe this meal truly means. And we're going to do that by looking at this catechism question from the New City Catechism on the Lord's Supper. I'm going to read the question, and then we're all going to read the answer together to prepare our hearts for taking the bread and the cup. So here's the question. What is the Lord's Supper? I'm going to invite you to read with me. Christ commanded all Christians to eat bread and to drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of Him and His death. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the presence of God in our midst, bringing us into communion with God and with one another, feeding and nourishing our souls. It also anticipates the day when we will eat and drink with Christ in His Father's kingdom. Amen. This morning we're going to have four stations and uh, a, a little change that we are doing now with communion is we have some communion gluten-free wafers. Uh, we, we know that some of you can't eat the bread, and uh, so we're willing to adjust. We don't want to have any barrier in place for anyone receiving this meal. So this morning, if you're at a place where you, you are ready to acknowledge your need for Christ then we invite you to come. But if you're at a place this morning, maybe you're not ready to bow the knee. Maybe in your heart, you're resistant to Christ's rule in your life. Maybe that draw, that pull of, of, of Herod is greater than you're willing to admit. And, it, and we invite you to stay seated. We don't want you to participate if you're not desperate for Jesus to meet you in this meal. And so we're going to have uh, four stations, two in the front and two in the back. And so we invite you to, to go uh, receive the elements. Do that together. Don't feel you have to do that individually. This meal symbolizes our unity in Christ as well. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, This is my body given for you. Take Eat in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, This is my shed blood, the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Drink, all of you, in remembrance of me. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for this meal. Thank you for what it speaks to us. It speaks to our hearts. Our hearts are desperate, Jesus, for your grace. I know for myself, Lord, when I think about the ways that I, I reject your rule in my heart, to hear your invitation to eat with you, 
even when I know that hatred is a reality at times within me. I come humbled, I come desperate, I come seeking. I'm seeking your forgiveness, seeking your love for me. And I know in this meal, you are speaking those words. You are embracing me. And I pray that that reality would be true for each and every person in this room. Lord, speak your words of comfort to us. Speak your words of hope as we take and are nourished by you. We love you and are seeking you in this time. Meet us, Jesus. Amen.